So I, I'm always reluctant. Like I'm doing this funeral on Wednesday uh, for my friend, Troy Doctor. And, and I mean friend. We, we've, since 2009, our friendship has gone through fire. It's, he's just one of those guys. And in the funeral, I can't distract people from Troy and from God by talking about what I'm feeling. But I, you are my faith community, so I'm going to let you know that it's all right there. So if you see me choking up, I mean every word I'm going to say, but if you see me right on edge, part of it is because a 47-year-old friend of mine died, and the only thing we have to hang on to is his faith in Christ. So it's, it's right there. I also want to thank you as a church for building this building. Um, Troy is well known in the community and there's going to be five to 700 people here and his church that uh, Hardawake, where I, I've come from and some others that are here come from, um, it's not big enough to handle that size crowd. So the staff and volunteers of this church and the facility, we have a venue for this, we're able to host community funerals, not just funerals from people within Community Reform Church. So I want to thank you for your support of this church to have a venue like this that we get to serve our broader community. I'd also like to ask for prayers on through Wednesday. Um, I want to do, I want to, I don't want someone else doing the funeral, but I don't want to do the funeral. Does that make sense? I don't want him to be dead. So uh, getting through that and giving honor to God and giving hope to the family and his friends. Um, I'd appreciate that. So thank you, Jen, for your prayer. Uh, we're going to be in, it's a lot of reading today. I'm going to just t- tell you, we'll go over by a few minutes, not a ton, but we will go over by a few minutes today uh, over what you have in your head is that hour mark. Boom. And if I keep saying that we're going to go over, it's going to go over longer. So I'm going to stop. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 26. We've got just a few verses in chapter 25. We left Paul last week. Um, he was, uh, Festus had, uh, Festus is kind of the governor of the area. Paul's in prison for this proclamation of the gospel. The Jews want him dead. He's been in prison for over two years. Uh, Felix was the former governor. He's been replaced by Festus. Festus, why? He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to get in trouble um, with the Jews, uh, but he doesn't think that Paul is guilty of anything. Paul appealed to Caesar, so he's got to send him to Caesar. However, he's got this problem. He doesn't know what to say to Caesar about the charges because he doesn't think he's done anything that deserves death. So King Agrippa, who is the Jewish king. He's the guy who holds the vestments to the priesthood, that kind of thing, but he's a sellout to Rome. He and his wife are there. Uh, excuse me. He and his sister are there, but his sister and he have a relationship more like a husband and a wife. So it's weird. Festus, the governor, talks to Agrippa and Agrippa goes, I want to talk to Paul. That's where we start here today. It's a lot of reading. I won't go over, I'll go fast, but I'm not going to go so fast, hopefully that you can't understand me. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that's his sister slash sister wife, um, came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officials and the, and, and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found that he, he had done nothing deserving of death, But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite the right to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, that so that you so that as a result of this 
investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Now, just for a second, I don't know Festus. There's not a whole lot written about him. I know that Felix, there's more written about Felix, and Felix was, was afraid of the majority population in his region, that's the Jews. And so he kept doing them a favor by keeping Paul in prison, even though Paul had done nothing deserving of death and had not broken any Roman law. Here, Festus, the new governor, he's only been doing this for a couple of weeks, and uh, he... <laughs> He finds this spot, he's in this spot, and he doesn't know how to get out of it. And so maybe he's just hoping we get enough people together, enough people yell at each other, that someone will say something wrong, and then we can say, that's why you're here, Paul, and we're going to kill you for it. I don't know. But he's, he's, he's got nothing, and he doesn't want to look foolish to the, to the emperor by sending off a prisoner with no charges. So King Agrippa, then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. And that typical defensive uh, defense terminology here, the way his approach to it. King Agrippa, I, <coughs> I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially, to, uh, so, especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible, unbelievable, that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of, one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests many of whom are sitting there. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because that is a common colloquialism of that time. It is not that common in our time. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Here's what a goad is. If you're a, if you're a farmer and you have a, an ox or a mule or something that's going to pull a plow, goat herders have goads as well, but for different reason. If you have this stubborn mule or this ox in front of you, you have a stick pointed at one end, blunt on the other, and when that mule or that ox doesn't want to go anywhere, you poke him. And sometimes, because they're stubborn beasts of burden, they kick. And when they kick, 
against the goad, it hurts them even more. It doesn't, it's it's futile. It doesn't help anymore. So when God, Jesus, appears to Paul and says, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm going to, there's a quote that a guy in the GLS said over and over. I submit for your consideration this thing. Paul knew Christianity already. Think about it. He's a contemporary of Jesus. Probably a short guy. He used to be Saul, big man. He renamed Paul, which means small. Paul's probably not tall in stature. And I don't know. I don't know. I just want to make sure that you understand that I'm, I'm just intellectualizing this for a second, imagining this. But Paul lived in Jerusalem a long time, and he was a Pharisee. And who were the ones that came up against Jesus over and over and over and over again? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. Saul, then a Jewish Pharisee, probably heard Jesus speak. He's probably standing in the back of the crowd, up on his tiptoes, looking over, going, how is this false teacher getting all this attention and leading my people astray? So he's frustrated. He's hurt, but he also heard what Jesus had to say. I don't know this for sure, but it's highly likely because Jesus had, when he was in Jerusalem, drew such crowds. And then Paul, Saul, who he, he, he went around persecuting the church. That's his testimony right here. And as he went along, he, he heard, he tried to get them to blaspheme. He heard what their hope was in. He saw them go to death and praising God that they were declared worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. There has to be something gnawing at Paul all along. Something that he's hanging on to. Something that he believes. And I tell you a story about a professor friend of mine. His Excuse me. His name is Chris Kaiser. Now think what you will about Chris Kaiser if you had him in seminary. He was a man that had huge influence and impact on my life. He is the smartest man I've ever gotten to know personally. This is a guy that reads quantum mechanics for recreation. It's bathroom reading for him. He is brilliant. And he had two parents, both were college professors, one at Boston University and one, uh, yeah, Boston University and one at Harvard. So I don't, I don't remember where Chris went to school, but when he went off to college, he was, he was in a dorm room and these Christians in his dorm room kept inviting him to these Bible studies. And he would go and he would rip them apart. Rip them apart. In three or four weeks, he would leave there and he's like, like man, I, they, they, they're going to lose their faith. This whole Jesus thing is God delusion. And he, and, but Here's his testimony. Chris says this. And yes, it's Dr. Kaiser, but I know him well enough. I call him Chris. Chris said this. He goes, one day when I was walking back to my dorm room from theirs, after that Bible study where I shredded their arguments, he said, I knew I won, but I knew they were right. You hear it enough. And it's presented to you in such a way that it's true. God has genetically engineered every one of us to want and to want God, to want to worship something, and we want all of it, not something small. So Paul, Jesus says when he meets Paul, it's the only time that Paul chooses to tell that part because he's talking to Agrippa, he's talking to Festus, he's talking to Jewish leaders. They've all heard the gospel. They all understand why Paul's in prison. They all have heard what Paul has to say, and they can't find anything wrong with him. It's bugging them. And it bugged Paul. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Then, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles. Also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his people, to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, the governor, interrupts, Paul, uh, interrupts Paul's defense. He says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. And he says, and then he, now Paul answers Festus, but he turns back to Agrippa, the king. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time I, you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul, Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all those who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And they left the room and while talking with one another, they said, this man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I don't know if Paul made a mistake by appealing to Caesar. I don't know. I can't believe that he did because God would not allow these things to happen. In fact, God had promised to Ananias, who was the person that he sent to Paul back in Acts 9, I believe it's verse 15, but he had told Ananias, don't worry about it. Just go, give him back his sight. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name and he will preach before kings and Gentiles. Paul, maybe God would have worked it out a different way, but I don't think Paul appealed to Caesar because Paul was just trying to get out of it. He even said in the last chapter, look, if I've done something deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. I think Paul, at God's prompting, appealed to Caesar because he's gonna get, that gets him before the king and that's gonna get him on a trip to Rome, which we'll hear about next week. And you'll hear about a shipwreck. You'll hear about another whole group of people on an island that Paul leads to Christ before he ever gets to Rome. But what's going on here is Paul, Paul being obedient to God's promise to him and God being obedient to his, to his promise, or God being faithful to his promise to us. And that is this. Every single person on the planet, genetically engineered by its creator, to want God. We're made to worship something beyond ourselves, and we all worship something. We will either worship something small, or, or we'll worship something bigger. But if we don't worship God, we're settling, and it's going to destroy our lives. It's light and darkness. There's no such thing as a flash dark. You can't, you can't, you can't come into light and flip on darkness. But always light will overcome darkness. There's Satan and his kingdom and power. And there's Christ and his grace and redemption and his kingdom and power. It's very black and white. Jesus tells that to Paul. And Paul is so utterly convinced of it 
that no matter what happens, no matter how many times he's beaten, no matter how many times he's kicked out, no matter how many times he suffers, no matter how many times he's sick, no matter how many times he's, he, he's betrayed, no matter how many times he's turned over, he refuses to stop telling people the one thing that will change everything. And I'm not talking about just this particular person or that particular person. I'm talking about the whole world changed. You and I changed because of what Paul was willing to do. Most of what we know in the New Testament comes from Paul. And Paul, while in prison, was writing those letters to encourage the churches. You and I are recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ because Paul was so convinced, utterly convinced of the grace of God that he would not quit. And he was willing to stand in front of kings and tell them, yeah, I want for you to be a Christian. Of course I do. Here's the thing. Paul was standing in front of his enemies Every person in that room, maybe not Festus, maybe not Agrippa because they didn't know him that well, but every person in that room was there because they wanted him dead. Small people, not really important people, centurions, prison guards, all the Jewish leaders that come from Jerusalem over to here, the king himself, they're all there. We want him dead. Why do they want him dead? Because he's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ that you, you are not accountable only to yourself, but you're accountable to God, that you need to repent, turn around, embrace Christ, and then through your deeds show that that repentance is real. That's what he's preaching. This is not something that's gonna kill the world. It's not spreading a disease. It's hope. And they want him dead. And he's, they are his enemies, and he treats them like children that bear the image of the Most High God. He doesn't treat them like enemies. He doesn't stand up and, and, bring, and, ring, and call down fire to, to, to wipe them out and burn them to a crisp, like in Indiana Jones in the last, in the last crusade of that, that, that when they open up the ark. He, he could have. He's an apostle of Christ, and if God willed it, he could destroy them all, and he would just come out not even smelling like smoke, just like Daniel in the, in the, in the furnace. But that's not what Paul does. Paul, with the courage that is unthinkable, says, God loves you. And he wants to resurrect you just like he resurrected Jesus. So folks, who do you see? How do you see your enemies? As children, image bearers of God, when I was sitting with my buddies that I meet with, we used to meet with uh, Troy. God, so weird. On Tuesday, we decided, or Wednesday, we decided to get together. This group of guys that meets every other Monday night for about six years. And I'm, I'm at the mobile station, and I'm putting gas in my car. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going over to Buffalo Wild Wings, the meeting place, you know. I'm going over to Buffalo, B-dubs, and oh, I'm going to see Troy. We're meeting because Troy doesn't exist anymore here. And then I got a car, quick car wash. I realize I'm running a little bit late. Um, and, I, oh, I, I, should, yeah, I should text Troy and let him know I'm, I'm What? What, what, how crazy is that? I know he's not there, but he's there. I miss him. And we show up, and I'm just asking the guys, I'm trying to not be pastor, just be Trent. And Jeff lies, dear, dear friend, who I have the utmost respect for, he goes, the thing I know about Troy is that every single person he meets, he treats them like they're an image bearer of Christ. Can you imagine if that's what people said about you when you're gone? Now, I, I saw Troy when we were going through some times. I saw him for a moment lose his cool. And it had to do with a pastor. And he said, I can't believe pastors. That was it. That's as far as he went. A pastor would do that? And then he apologized and he just kept moving. That's Paul. That's what Paul's doing. 
People who hate him, he loves them with Jesus' name. What about you? Because every one of you has a testimony, which is what he just did. He testified. And when he had his opportunity to try to find a legal loophole, he didn't. He just said, our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. I'm paraphrasing, but you see, that's what he said. You have a story. You have a testimony. God, what is this? This is the Bible, right? It's the word of God. It's a collection of stories of God pursuing his people and redeeming them. Your interaction with Christ, the Holy Spirit of God living in you, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. You're now the temple. You have a relationship. He's still writing scripture. He's just not going to record it in a book. He's writing scripture in you. Your interaction with God, his story, his, his unanswered prayers and his, and his answered prayers. You're trusting in him versus not trusting him. That's God's story. And that story will never be heard if you don't tell it. God calls Paul to proclaim the gospel. God's called me to proclaim the gospel. God's called Kurt to, to proclaim the gospel. And he's called you to proclaim the gospel by telling your story. And here's the thing. Your friends or your enemies, those that when God gives you an opportunity to use words and to declare your story, to tell the truth of Christ's interaction with you to someone else, they might look at you and go, you're crazy. but they're kicking against the goads. If you heard it and you couldn't resist it, if you heard it and you couldn't ignore it, if you heard it and you couldn't shake it, do you really think that God is gonna behave differently in someone else that he's calling to himself? Or does he wanna use you to tell your story or to serve someone or to love your enemy and see if that doesn't bug them, it doesn't gnaw at them, it doesn't just kind of, so that sometimes, sooner or later, they acquiesce and they go, okay, Lord, I'm worn. I'm tired. I, got, I give up. I can't fight anymore. I can't fight against you anymore. See, Chris Kaiser's story is Paul's story, and it's my story. Paul talks about who he was, his experience with Christ, and who he's become. For me, 15 years old, worst time of my life up to that point, my parents had split up, my dad had gone bankrupt. The only thing I had interest in and the only thing I had hope for were the things that all high school sophomores love, girls and beer. That's what I was into. And I went, a friend of mine invited me to a Young Life Club and I went to that Young Life Club and he had something that he wanted me to smoke with him and I was a willing participant. I showed up to this Young Life Club, high. And this guy, this grown man named Garth, I have no idea what his last name was, he introduced himself to me and he heard my name. And I, we sat there and they sang some Jesus songs and some other weird stuff and there's a skit and then some guy talked about Jesus and I went home and the same guy invited me to come back the next week and I came back the next week in the same condition and this grown man named Garth saw me come in the door and he goes, Brent? Brett, like it's Trent. I could not believe that a grown man would even try to care to know who I am, to know what my name is. So I kept coming. And then I got invited to this big, this big uh, all-city club where they're going to talk about camp. And uh, I went because I was told that the cheerleader, a lot of the cheerleaders from uh, Kentwood were going to be there. They were cute. And back then, they weren't wearing skirts. They were wearing those shorts. It was just, they were just beautiful. There's three of them. I can still name them today. Just won't do it. One of them will be sitting here or online. But I just want you to know what my motive was. It was not Jesus. 
So I go and I, and I go home with this pamphlet, and for some reason I kept this pamphlet. It's about, and I was able to talk my dad into 260 bucks to send me to Frontier Ranch in Buena Vista, Colorado. When I got there, again, it was five different buses. It was a two-week trip. We went through the, the, the Badlands, and we went through the Tetons, and then we ended up in Buena Vista, Colorado at Frontier Ranch. And we got off. I'm this tiny little skinny freshman that if I drank tomato juice, I'd look like a thermometer. And I'm there, everybody else is older than me, almost, there's one other guy my age, and, but these girls were there from Kentwood. And every night we went to this club, and this guy who was about 40-something years old, he stood up in front of everybody, and he, he talked about his experience, his story, when, when he had come to know Jesus. And he devoted his life from that day forward to proclaim the good news of Christ to high school students. I was one of them. And on one night after four, different, four or five different of these sermons, these talks, he said, he told his story, and he said, and you can do that too. I want you to go outside, no Walkmans, no anything, no distractions. Don't talk to anybody. If you want to count the stars, count the stars, but sit alone for 20 minutes. And I sat alone for 20 minutes. And I chose heaven over hell that day. Now, did God, was God working on me before then? Of course. But that day I knew I chose. My eternal address changed. It also happens to be Kyle's actual birthday. He was born on the day that I was born again. I tell you that story because I have one, and so do you. There's much more to it. All the different things since I've been a Christian, Paul talks about his here, but you have a story. And some of you are kind of embarrassed or you poo-poo your story, and you should not. You go, well, I don't remember a day. I mean, we all love the story about the, the young lady who was into drugs, and then she was prostituting herself, and she, she walked down the street, and someone handed her a track, and she read it, and it said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And she fell to her knees and cried right there on the street and gave her life to Jesus. We love those stories because it's so dramatic. And we go, well, yeah, but I've known Jesus my whole life. I, I don't ever remember a time when I didn't know that God loved me. I don't remember a time where I ever actually gave my life to Christ. I, well, praise God for that story. That's the story we all want for our children. It's the story we certainly want for our grandchildren. I don't want any of you to ever doubt that Jesus loves you. That story needs to be told. And it probably needs to be told to someone who life is dumped on. Remember the leper in John chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter two? And he comes up to Jesus, he risks his life, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me whole. And Jesus reaches out and touches him and then says, I'm willing, be whole. Leprosy gone. Life had dumped all over that guy. He didn't choose leprosy. Life dumped on him. And Jesus healed him. And then there's people that it was like, they kind of dumped on themselves. The woman caught in adultery, John 8. She's she a willing participant. And she comes up and all these people are saying, you got to kill her, you got to kill her. And Jesus looks up and he goes, you, if you've never messed up, you kill her. And they walk away. And what does Jesus say? No. He, he, I don't even think he looks her in the face because she's half naked. He says, is there anyone left to condemn you? No. No, sir then I don't either. Just don't do that anymore. The people that will push back against the goads that you have contact with need to hear your story. Even if that story is just pure service and you just love them. You just love them. And you serve them. And when they push back and you serve them more, it will speak volumes about the love of God. And that, trust me, folks, is the only thing that matters. There is no politician that's going to save us. There is no political system or other belief system that is going to change our city, our county, our region, our state, our nation, our hemisphere, our world. Only one. 
For God so loved the whole world that he became one of us and he died. He took our sins to hell. He beat death and he ascended to the Father. And he sent the Holy Spirit of God to take up residence in us to change everything. You are the scripture of God that is beyond this book. Let God tell his story through you. No matter who you come in contact with, be bold, but be gentle. Peter says, we should always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ, but do so with gentleness and respect. Let us be a people who love God and love others, even our enemies, so that the gospel, the story, the love of God can go out and change their heart, change their life, and then they will change someone else, and then they will change someone else, and then they will change someone else. And 20 years from now, the world worships Jesus, one person at a time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Troy's story. Thank you for Dr. Kaiser's story. Thank you for my story. And thank you for every story in this room. There is no, no way you've worked in someone's life that isn't miraculous. There is no story that shouldn't be told. So Lord, give us the courage of Paul, the heart of Jesus, and the prompting of your spirit to share your story with people that don't yet know that you love them. We offer this to you for your glory and your name. Amen. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? But about the principalities and the authorities of the air. He's saying the same thing he said in court. He's saying that God sent him to rescue us from the power of the devil to Christ and his kingdom. Those people that you're thinking of when you think of enemies, they're not your enemies. In fact, we feed into the enemy's ploy when we start hating others. The only thing right now that I hate is cancer. And I think it's okay for me to hate cancer because it wasn't God's intent. So let me leave you with this little picture. It's not a second sermon, I promise. I'll be really fast. I know, I know, I know, and I know me. Lynn and I used to have this practice when we were first dating, when we got, we started getting serious. And not a practice, it was just something we did, but we would be close to one another, you know, kind of saying goodnight or something, and I'm leaving, and, and cold, really cold in the car on the way home. Um, but we would just stare at each other, hold each other's eyes. I mean, this far apart. And after a while, and I, I could go forever, and she would go, what, what, like, what is he looking for? What? And, and one time she asked, I said, well, I'll know. But it, there's something that changes in you when you have someone's gaze for a long time. Last night, we were sitting together, and it's been a tough week, and so we were just gazing. And, and she's a little blurrier now than she used to be. <laughs> Not because of her, because of my eyes. It's just like, man, it's kind of hard to, you have eyes there, right? But it just made me think about this thing we'd say at the end of almost every service, this, you know, God turn his countenance for you. That's what that is. When I'm gazing into Lynn's eyes, it changes me and it changes her. And it actually relationally changes the wiring in our brain when we hold the gaze of someone else. So when you hear that part, the Lord turn his countenance for you, that God give you his face and smile at you, that's what he's doing. He's looking at you. He's adoring you. And he wants you to adore him back. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. The Lord give you his face.
and smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.